0: Welcome again, everyone, to the Unsolved United States series. We've been making a lot of ground in these videos lately, so I don't want to slow down. Tonight, we'll be focusing on a handful of cases from Montana, all picked by you all watching. Thank you for the submissions, and let's begin. Jermaine's case will be the most recent case we talk about tonight, and while there isn't an incredible amount of information, I wanted to include it. On June 16th, 2016, Jermaine, a Native American woman from Missoula, Montana, went missing sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. On the night of her abduction, she had been to three separate bars in the area, including The Badlander, Golden Rose, and Dark Horse. She was dropped off on 5th Street, heading east towards the Arn Street food farm. She was never heard from again. From that night until now, Germaine's social media profiles have gone untouched and not updated. This is considered very strange behavior for her, leading many to believe she's either already been killed, or the person who took her is not allowing her to have any contact with the outside world. The main theory I see in this case is that of human trafficking. From an article on News Talk published July 2018, Guy Baker, a police detective, said her pattern of life had been very disrupted and no one has heard from her. We have several different investigative possibilities that we're following up on, and one of those includes that she may be the victim of a trafficking situation. Others have suggested that with Jermaine being an indigenous woman, she would have been targeted. As we've covered before, indigenous women seem to be targeted much more often than women of different races. Jermaine's photos have become, more or less, the face of the missing and murdered indigenous women in Montana. There have been very few leads in this case, but police are doing what they can with what information they have. When the popular TV show Live PD came to Montana, her case was featured numerous times over the show's running, and in 2018, led to numerous leads about a social media account that was very active and had one of her photos as the profile picture. The social media account was being run out of Minnesota, and after an investigation, it was determined the woman running it was unaware of the story behind the woman's photo she'd been using. The police later determined the woman didn't know Jermaine, and they have no reason to believe she ever knew that she was missing. Other reports of possible sightings came in from Arkansas and were investigated, but still led to nothing. Nevertheless, police handed out flyers across the town Jermaine was reported to have been seen in. So far, nothing more has come from Arkansas about this case. If you have any information on who may have abducted Germaine or where she may be, I implore you to call Detective Guy Baker directly at 406-396-3217. According to an article published two days after Morris' death on the 7th of April, 1985, Morris, who was only 23, was employed part-time at Howard's Pizza, a member of the Great Falls Stunt Car Association. He was also an avid hunter, fisherman, and rodeo fan. In other words, he was just trying to live. Morris had been employed at Howard's Pizza for quite some time before his final call came on the 5th of April, 1985. The call came at around 9 p.m. to 1015 6th Avenue Northwest in Great Falls. Morris arrived at the home around 20 minutes later. Enough time passed without Morris radioing to the store that the delivery was complete, that another driver was sent out to make sure everything was okay. Perhaps Morris had a flat tire, sprained an ankle coming down the steps, a whole slew of possibilities. It isn't stated in the article when the second delivery truck arrived, but when he did, he immediately radioed back to the shop to say that Morris was found just outside the sliding glass door of the house, and that he'd been badly injured. The police were called at 10.56, and an officer arrived a short time later along with an ambulance. One of the ambulance attendants happened to be Morris' brother, so the other EMT and police officer attempted to revive Morris. He'd been shot a total of eight times, once in the face, four times in the chest, and once each in the right wrist, upper stomach, and left ribcage. The gun was determined to be a twenty-two caliber pistol, given the shell casings that were found at the scene. Not found there was Morris's pizza wallet, which had an unknown amount of money inside of it. Strangely, his personal wallet and the coin changer were left untouched. Morris passed away at the hospital the same night of the shooting, just after 11 p.m. Unfortunately, that's about where this case has sat for over 30 years, but that isn't for a lack of searching for answers. In an article published a year and one week after Morris's death, Police Detective Joe McGuire has been working the case almost continually. He said he and his fellow officers have interviewed more than five hundred people who claim to have witnessed the event or think they know something about it. The lure of a large cash reward has failed to produce a lead. Crime stoppers had offered more than six thousand dollars to anyone able to identify the responsible party. Still, nothing conclusive has been learned. The following year, Morris' mother, Delnita, said, I'm disgusted with the way things are going with the detective division on my son's case. For some time at the writing of this article, she believed that the police were withholding information from her about the investigation. Her statement continued with, Great Falls detectives couldn't find a killer if he was standing in front of them. The man in charge of the detective division at the time of this case, a man referred to as Jones, made the point that this case is sticking with him as well. He said, This is hers to live with, but I have to live with it too, and it's not easy. Finally, Sergeant David Warrington did respond directly to Mrs. Davis's complaints, saying, I wish she would accept the fact that we're doing everything in our power to solve this case. To her, we are the enemy, and that's not right. It is worth noting that at the time of Morris's murder, there were only three unsolved cases in Great Falls. The other 47 had been solved. I believe what is happening here is that there is just not much to go off on a case like Morris's. The person who killed him had most likely been gone for over an hour before the police arrived, and given that it was late at night in a vacant house and Morris was alone, the idea of an eyewitness seems scarce. From what I've read, there was a break in the case in May of 1988. In a town 180 miles from Great Falls, a man was arrested for driving a car that had been reported stolen. When the man was searched, the police discovered receipts for a pawn shop in Great Falls for a 22 caliber handgun. The police picked up the handgun from the shop and traced it back to the original owner, a man referred to as Rick. Rick claimed the gun was kept in a hall closet under various blankets and said he and his wife had no involvement in the murder. Rick and the man who sold the stolen gun have both been cleared as suspects. The gun itself, when a second ballistics test was conducted in October of 1995, determined that it was not the gun used in the shooting of Morris, as police initially thought. This put them, more or less, back to square one. Morris's brother Cliff has stated that he believes he knew someone with information about the case, stating that a man named Donald Dubray spoke about intimate details about Morris's death, including where the body was found, details about the layout of the house, and where the shots were fired from. Donald was also convicted of the murder of a store clerk in Great Falls, Suzette Pritchard, in 1986. The motive there was the same as the believed motive in morris's murder investigators in the case did state that donald was a suspect but he passed away in prison in 2016 while serving his sentence for the murder of suzette while police questioned him about morris's case numerous times he never confessed or gave details that helped narrow down a suspect i do believe police would withhold information in this case but it would only be info known to the police or the person who took morris's life Despite this, Morris' case has come to an absolute standstill. There is little to nothing online other than a handful of archived articles and a wiki page. If you do believe you have any information on regarding this case, don't wait to call. You can get in contact with the Cascade County Great Falls Area Crime Stoppers at 406-727-8477. We finish with the tragic case of Nyleen Marshall out of Clancy, Montana, a town just over 1600 in 2010. It was the 25th of June, 1983. Nileen was just four years old. Her and her family were having a picnic in the Helena National Forest in the Elkhorn Mountains, not far from Clancy. Nileen had headed off into the woods with some of the other children there to explore the park, saying to have been headed to a creek bed. Reports say that at 4 p.m., the group got ahead of her, and when they turned back, she was gone. She was reported missing not long after. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office jumped into the investigation headfirst, beginning with a large search of the area. The search included dogs, over 200 volunteers, the police force, the Lewis and Clark search and rescue, and even a helicopter with thermal imaging, but Nyleen was nowhere to be found. With the search seeming to turn up nothing, the police looked to young children who were with Nyleen in the last moments she was seen, and two accounts led police in a new direction. While it was initially believed that Nyleen could have fallen and gotten hurt, possibly even taken off by an animal, the reports of a strange man quickly changed that belief. An article published just two years after Nyleen's abduction states, As searchers were still combing the woods five days after Nyleen disappeared, A child came forward with information. A strange man had stepped out from behind a tree a few feet from Nyleen, only a moment before she vanished. The next day, another child gave the same account. The marshals say the two children had not talked to each other. The Unsolved Mysteries Wiki also explains the man in slightly more detail, saying the children said he was wearing a purple jogging suit. It's also worth noting that Nileen went missing not far from a cabin that was owned by one of the members of the radio club that had met at the park with Nyleen's parents that day. It's possible whoever took Nyleen kept her there for a short time before moving her to a new location. As far as the unknown man in purple, he was said to have spoken to two of the other children, but one ignored him and the other ran away. Nileen stayed, and as reports say, the man told her she needed to follow the shadow. It's very possible this was a game he concocted to get her to follow him deep into the woods. As it turns out, this wouldn't be the only game he played. Two years after Nyleen went missing, on the 27th of November 1985, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System received a phone call from an unidentified man. On the call, he claimed to have been the man who took Nyleen. Two months later, law enforcement in Wisconsin received a similar message, but this time it was a letter, typewritten saying he'd abducted a young woman named Kay. Kay was Nileen's middle name. Furthermore, the letter was said to have had information that would have only been known to the family or those involved in the investigation. Also in the letter were confessions of this man sexually abusing Nyleen. The letter was postmarked Madison, Wisconsin. Finally, another nonprofit, this time out of New York, called the Child Find of America, received a letter very similar to the one sent to the Wisconsin law enforcement. The family were also sent to receive calls for a short time, but when the FBI stepped in and began tracing the call, they stopped. Two calls were traced, however. Both were traced to several phone booths in Wisconsin including one in Madison and another in Edgerton. The FBI believes that all these events were done by the same person and have given no reason to believe it is a hoax or a cruel joke. The following is an excerpt from the letter sent to the police. They don't include the information that they believe proves they are real and from the person who took Nyleen, but it does shed some light on what may have happened. I didn't want their person to try and get information from her. All I could tell them was that she was okay. I hope Child Find can get the following back to her family. I picked Kay up on the road in Elkhorn Park area between Helena and Boulder. She was crying and frightened, and as I held her, she was shaking, and I decided that I would keep her and love her. I took her home with me. I have a nice investment income, and I can work from home so I can care for her myself all the time. I teach her at home, and she likes to go with me when I travel. Her hair is short and curly, and now she has really grown. She is about 45 inches and 50 pounds. She has all four of her permanent upper and two of her lower incisors at this time. She takes a bath and brushes her teeth every day. She eats well. Her favorite meal is pizza. It would seem that there is some sort of Stockholm Syndrome at play, or at least in the early stages of developing it. I'm no expert, so take that with a grain of salt. With that said, the way he speaks about taking care of her, teaching her, and taking her places makes it seem that at the time of these letters, Nyleen, or Kay as she called her, had put a lot of trust into this man. Furthermore, the traveling bit seems to match up with the various sightings that come from around the U.S. for years after Nileen was abducted. One such believed sighting came in 1995, 12 years after Nileen's kidnapping. A nurse was working at a hospital in New Orleans and said a woman came in asking to be admitted to give birth. The man with her, presumably the soon-to-be father, was never married. The nurse later claimed their stories about the relationship didn't seem to add up, and two years after seeing them, she called Unsolved Mysteries to report it. The woman was tracked down and given a DNA test that proved she was not Nyleen. As late as 2018, though, there seems to be renowned interest in this case. On the 1st of May 2018, this photo was posted with the caption, Businesses in the Jamesville, Indian Ford, and Edgerton have received handwritten letters similar to this one postmarked from Cincinnati, Ohio, without a return address. Some people in the comments speculate it could be a hoax. The creator of the page stated she initially believed it was some kind of community effort, maybe done by some schools in the area, to raise awareness for the case, but with it being postmarked from Cincinnati, Ohio, that seems unlikely. Another woman, Kara, stated she received a near-identical postcard just a few months before this was posted, including the same photo and writing, again, from Ohio. Kara said she was working at a Walgreens in Janesville, Wisconsin at the time. This led some to believe that Nyleen is still alive and simply living with her captor, similar to the abduction of J.C. Duggard, but others are not so optimistic. Given the ties to Wisconsin, some online theorize that Nyleen could have been the identity of the Wisconsin Jane Doe. Some side-by-side comparisons to the Wisconsin Doe's post-mortem photograph do have similarities, Though, from what i found, the Wisconsin Jane Doe was identified in 2019 as a woman named Peggy Lynn Johnson. Another case solved because of Nyleen's investigation was the case of Monica Benila, who was recovered in 1982 in California after being abducted by her non-custodial father. With the death of Nyleen's mother, Nancy, in 1995, this case became even more tragic. Nancy was murdered while in a Mexico City hotel following a sexual assault. While the cause of death was asphyxiation, the Mexican authorities have said to have been very slow going on the case. It was originally classified as suicide, though it was later changed to under investigation. It is still unsolved to this day, just like Nyleen's case. If you do have any information that you believe can help police in this case, don't hesitate to reach out and report it. You can call the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office Missing Persons Unit at 406-225-4075. You can also email information to info at org. Both of these can be done anonymously. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day afternoon or evening to listen or watch this video i really appreciate it if you want to support the channel we have face masks in the teespring store we have uh, pride merch in the teespring store and we also have the regular uh, take care of yourself merch in the teespring store There are also links to become a member and become a patron down in the description below. If you do that, it's a dollar a month and you get videos a day in advance. Uh, It's a really cool, simple way to support the channel. A lot of people enjoy it, and I think you would too. So if it sounds like something you're interested in, check it out. Um, Thanks again for listening, taking some time out of your day for this video. Uh, Take care of yourself, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.